I want to jump right into this this morning because uh, it's going to be a little church on the longer side. I want to play a little game with you, very little game, to begin 2014. Just to yourself, I want you to, this is a little word association. When I say New Year's, what word comes right to your mind? Yeah, that, I said keep it to yourself. Okay, we're going to play another game for 2014. It's called listening with both ears. <laughs> okay. Was the word... <laughs> That's okay. There wasn't a right or wrong answer. I was just curious. Okay. Great. Okay, talking about the book of Judges... As we've seen, as we've, it's been a few weeks, I know, since we've been there. But we've seen the cyclical nature of God's people through many, many years, decades, centuries. If we look at the Old Testament as a whole and actually the whole history of the church from the New Testament forward, we're talking about millennia even of sorrow, injury, warfare, death, and destruction. But going back to Judges in particular and what the historical narrative is telling us there, and here's the sobering part of it. While we've been looking at it and all of it looks like natural events of men and nations making their way, yes, we understand, in a fallen world, the sobering part is all of it, all of it had been brought on themselves by turning their backs on their heavenly king. Most often, it began with a, I'm going to call it a lazy spirituality. And that lazy spirituality began invariably and does still throughout history in times of relative ease when it's easy to fall prey to the perception of not needing God and thereby setting Him on a shelf, not out of the picture, as much as just out of the way. That lazy spirituality became a culturally ingrained habit, generally climaxed in a blatant turning away from the worship of Jehovah to the worship of other gods. And what was the result? A God-induced calamity. Now before I go further in this day of intentional and unintentional plagiarism, if you're astute in the world of Christendom, you know about all that and uh, Mr. Driscoll and all that stuff. I want to properly attribute the scriptural framework, not for where I'm going to go in just a few minutes, off the track a bit, but the scriptural framework for this message to the help of Dr. Warren Wiersbe. I don't normally form sermons this way. In fact, it is rarely that I consult commentaries. Discovering for myself an eon ago in my early informal studies of the Word, long before seminary was ever even on the horizon, what the great Howard Hendricks, 
of Dallas Theological Seminary once expressed in that dry wit of his, in my best Howard Hendricks impersonation. It's always interesting how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. If you know Howard Hendricks, you're going, wow, that, I wouldn't have known it wasn't him standing there. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great statement. It stuck with me through the years. Well, Dr. Wearsby, however, has been very helpful in this particular instance. In chapters 10 through 12 of the book of Judges, a man by the name of Jephthah is the main character in focus in this portion of the narrative. Let's begin in chapter 10 in verses 1 and 2, and this is what we read. Now, after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, I, I can't help but laugh every time I go to that, that and Doeg, two of my two favorite names in the scriptures, Dodo and Doeg. Anyway, he was a man of Issachar, and he arose to save Israel, and he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and then he died and was buried in Shamir. That's it for Tola's judgeship. His father was a guy named Pua, his grandfather a dodo. I mean, his grandfather was dodo. And Tola arose to save Israel through the oppressor at this time, which isn't even named. Again, when we're looking at God's inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word, when something is not there and seems to be obvious not there, it's, it's, there's reason for it. And at this time in this scripture, the purpose is not to get us focusing on them, they, the oppressors, but upon God's people. The text changes to a guy named Yair, whose judgeship was just as obscure Though we're told he was a Gileadite, means he was from Gilead. And he judged Israel 22 years. And then in verse 4 we read, Yair had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havot Yair to this day. And Yair died and was buried in Kamon. Not Kamon, Kamon. Isn't this exciting? <laughs> Two men, two judges, obscure, and yet influential enough to be remembered in the eternal Word of God, and also were able to bring a season of peace together, lasting together 45 years. Now, in the next verse, verse 6, we read that the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and they did not serve Him. Forty-five years of leadership that at least kept God's people from God having to bring His rod of correction down on them. But what happened in that 45-year period of relative social bliss? Or a better question probably is, 
what didn't happen in that 45-year period of relative social bliss. Instead of spiritual revival by God's people, instead of a new national yearning, a new national hunger for the Lord and for the Lord's righteousness and for God's precepts and God's wisdom and God's counsel for life, they existed instead, from all we know, in a state of relative peace and prosperity, but they didn't grow in their relationship to their king and their protector. So as soon as Yair dies, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to park that now for a few minutes. And I'm going to take a little rabbit trail an extended illustration, if you will. And let me be right up front with this, saying that I have taken great liberty. I am using considerable speculation as well as argument by assertion. And if you can accept that, which you don't have any choice because I'm going to give it to you anyway, let me make some observations about the good old U.S. of A. By the end of the decade of the 50s, and I start there for a couple of reasons. One, you'll see later on, but one is because I have personal knowledge and recollection from that era. I was seven years old by the end of that era. The classic major motion picture hit movie, which is still aired today at a particular time of year, usually around Easter, was The Ten Commandments. Some of the hit songs of that era were numerous ones by some then rising but fairly obscure singer by the name of Elvis Presley. Don't be cruel. No, don't be. No, no. Don't be cruel. Anyway, yeah. Uh, blue suede shoes. Shall I? No, I shall not. And in that same era, you ain't number hound Right, an old time. All right, that's as close as I'm going to get. Now, in a little different genre, but still in this era, the hit songs were I Could Have Danced All Night and On the Street Where You Live, both of which were from another hit movie, My Fair Lady, with Audrey Hepburn. Skipping from the movies now to the TV shows of the day were for entertainment, for entertainment primarily, rather than indoctrination. You might remember the Danny Thomas show, the Perry Como show, the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah, okay, see? I know who's there. I Love Lucy. Yeah, Ricky Ricardo. Lucy, the Lone Ranger. 
Okay. The Donna Reed Show. See? And the always redeeming Three Stooges. (laughs) No, I don't even want to know who that was. Moving into the decade now of the 60s, something was happening in the culture at large. Entertainment seemed to be morphing. Morphing, evolving, changing from sheer harmless distraction, like the juggler spinning plates on those flexible little upright shafts, Okay, some of you will remember this. He'd be on the Ed Sullivan Show and those other variety shows. I mean, this was entertainment. And for those of you who don't know what it is, picture a little, very thin little shaft that was in a stand, maybe six feet tall, and he would take a plate and he'd get it going on this, like this, you know, and then he'd do this with the pole and it would keep the plate going. Big deal, right? Well, he'd see how many of those he could do and get going. And by the time I remember one guy was up to 23 of these, Right? When you're getting down here and getting over here, this one down here is starting to, and the plate's going, whoa, and you're all like, and he'd run over here and he'd go, he'd get that one going, and then he'd go over here until finally one hit the entertainment, mindless distraction, amoral distraction, meaning not immoral, not moral, just Mindless distraction. And the shows moved, it seemed, to teaching wholesome social values. Well, there's always exceptions, as I said. Weekly television shows portrayed what was understood to be the typical American family, like the Andy Griffith Show. Who doesn't know Opie and Barney Fife? And then there was Fred McMurray, who just happened himself to be a believer, in My Three Sons. But what's interesting is that all these shows overwhelmingly portrayed biblical morals and precepts for culture. That is, in being entertained, the given foundations for a godly society were just part and parcel of the show. They weren't religious, but they didn't avoid religion. They didn't have to make the point of underscoring the biblical norms for the society because they were all simply a given. And then something else happened that I believe is significant. Shows of that caliber like Father Knows Best, The Donna Reed Show, and Leave it to Beaver, all of which began in the 50s, met their demise in the early to middle 60s. And then shows like Sesame Street, which was the first regular broadcast to be pointedly created as educational TV for children. 
which gradually then again moved and morphed into, I'm going to coin my own word, indoctrinational TV for children with an encroaching hostile juggernaut dismantling the old foundations, replacing them with a brave new world. To make an allusion to Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel by the same name, predicting the future in uncanny ways. Two scenes from Sesame Street are truly right in the forefront of my mind any time I think of Sesame Street because I really enjoyed Sesame Street when we'd watch it with the kids. Until. One of the things that I remember that just stood me on my heels was when one of the little childs in this scene, they were in a household setting, was drawing on the walls with a crayon. And instead of being told, no, it was wrong to draw on the walls of the house with your crayons, the ingenious mother figure, and I don't remember if it was Maria or not, doesn't matter, took butcher paper and taped butcher paper all over the walls at the height of the child, so now the child could still draw on the walls. God forbid that little Johnny would be told no, or that it was wrong. The second scene, or episode that is even more so in the front of my mind when I think about Sesame Street was, you might, if you watch Sesame Street, you remember Bob and Maria, they were regulars on the show. Bob, who was a very likable man, Maria, very likable people. And one day, in one of the episodes, Bob came out sporting an apron. Now, I wear an apron. I wore an apron Saturday night, I think, because I like cooking. I'm not against a man wearing an apron. And when Maria came out sporting her construction tool belt and hard hat, I don't have a problem with a woman slinging hammers and nails if that's what she wants to do. But there was a very pointed intention of the whole thing. They were upending the traditional roles of the man and woman as Bob was preparing to fill his role for the day and Maria her role for the day. The assault on the biblically informed foundations of many eras was underway. Oh, and I apologize if I'm going to step on toes here, but not really. Soap operas became the king of midday television. Yes, it was in the 60s. The general hospital and days of our lives broke on the scene. 
with their debauched, adultery-saturated, betrayal-laden, deceit-filled lives of the soap opera characters. It was obvious that there was a palpable change in society emerging. Instead of our culture collectively growing in relationship to the living God, embracing His rules for healthy living undergirded in our entertainment, the children coming of age in the 60s, which is many of us, well, some of us anyway, in here this morning, witnessed and were even part of the systematic dismantling of those foundations and assumptions occurring rapidly with the concurrent dismantling of God and His Bible. A new spirituality with worship meccas like Woodstock, Haight-Ashbury, Berkeley, meaning the University of California at Berkeley, and college campuses one by one became the new chapels for questioning truth and authority. Not that that is wrong in and of itself, but the 60s ushered in a new era of not merely questioning the biblical foundations of culture, but systematically and arrogantly overturning God's moral pronouncements for all things, to use Peter's language, pertaining to life and godliness. And the new pastors and the new priests wore the robes of academia. And the stronghold on which the destruction of a culture was based was nothing more than I think, I feel, or I believe. Logical formation of thoughtful reason was replaced with the deification of individualism and in an unwitting reenactment of the sin at the Garden of Eden, self became the new gods. Part and parcel of this rapid decline of social mores, that means the social norms of a community, was the welcome opening of Pandora's box. A box revealing a myriad of demonic invaders in a new access to the human spirit through mind-expanding, mind-altering drugs. Surprising even to many Christians is that this new satanic invader centuries ago had been delineated expressly in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, where we read, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and pharmakeia is the word in the Koine Greek, 
unfortunately translated sorcery in many translations. Just as I have forewarned you, Paul writes, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The illicit use of pharmakeia, mind-altering drugs, which includes cannabis sativa, popularly known as pot, marijuana, Mary Jane, hooch, whatever, is a doorway into the spirit realm. And by that I mean the realm of the demonic. And if the 60s are known for anything, it is social upheaval, widespread use of controlled substances and uncontrolled substances of all kinds, and sex as recreation. All of which helped, I'm going somewhere, hang on, all of which helped pave the way to the notable cultural hallmark worth mentioning that came in the next decade. In 1973, when seven learned men wearing black robes decided there was a constitutional right to privacy in the 14th Amendment, granting a woman the right to choose whether to keep her her pregnancy or not. This fundamentally, this at an empirical level, was a new level of sin, striking at the very heart of, of the uniqueness of mankind with respect to God's creation of man in what is called the Imago Dei. That is, man created in the image of God, in God's image and likeness. And we, being Christians and God's people, and yes, society at large, naively assuming it would be a challenge to exceed such a sin, increasingly, from that day on, more and more Christians and Christian denominations also embraced the Supreme Court's conclusion doing so with the strategic straining of the Scriptures, cleverly disguised with pseudo-spiritual gibberish like every child wanted and loved. And many Christians and churches bought it hook, line, and sinker. Never mind that God had revealed his mind on the matter variously and in numerous epochs throughout his word. Just one that comes to mind and is actually repeated in numerous places almost verbatim. We find in Jeremiah chapter 32-35, speaking of the wickedness of the land, God says... They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do 
this abomination. Molech was one of the false gods of the day, and they were sacrificing their children to this demon god. God Himself makes editorial comment of the egregious physical murder of one's child to the false gods of any age, making sure mankind understands that God Almighty never, ever, in any way, shape, or form commanded such a thing, and further emphasizing that such a thing would never even enter the mind of God. Now, the point of my taking all this time has not been for nostalgic purposes. In 2001, our nation experienced something unprecedented in our history. I've chosen my wording here very carefully and specifically. In 2001, something unprecedented in our history, when Allah-fearing Muslims successfully attacked the most powerful military in the world precisely because we were not Allah-fearing Muslims. The revisionism of the motives of that day, which were rehearsed and orchestrated by the media contending otherwise, is otherworldly. When you consider that such terrorism continues in many countries throughout the world, not just the United States. As I began this message now, the thought came to me to start at that particular time of calamity because it was unique in our history. And I decided from 2001 to go back in history 45 years. The number of years that God's people in the book of Judges lived in peace and prosperity but failed to grow in their relationship to the Lord God. And where you end up is in the decade. Reason number two that I mentioned at the beginning. You end up in the decade of the 50s, the particular epoch in our time when there was a pointed change beginning in our pursuit of God as a nation. Now, you can make light of this, but you could also make too much of this. This is not a prediction. It is not a proclamation of divine origin. What it is, is a vivid illustration of how God has acted in history when His people, when God's own people, not the idolaters, 
not the pagans of the land, not the godless nations, but when God's own people took Him for granted. Speaking to the church, Paul writes in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, speaking to His people, Therefore, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. Not embracing it, as so many Christians do. Consider your body as dead to impurity, to passion to evil desire and greed, which all mounts to idolatry. For it is because, hear this, it is because of these things. He's not talking about the lunacy and the insanity of those people out there. Ouch! He's talking about His people. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, now he's making a statement of optimistic, positive assumption here. And in them, you also once walked. Past tense. He's like giving a little jab. Once walked, meaning... You're not walking there anymore, are you? (laughs) When you were living in them yourselves. But now, you, the church, my people, also put them all aside. That's interesting. He says on the one hand, of course, this is a thing of the past for you all. (laughs) And yet, in the same breath, he says, put them aside. And a list follows again after that statement. Where we are currently as a nation and heading swiftly south where even God's people are slowly but definitely embracing yet another distinctive cultural hallmark which like abortion strikes at the very core of God's holiness. I am referring to the normalization of homosexuality. We are ripe and even pleading with God to pour His judgment out upon us all if there is anything to learn from history at all. And God's judgment, as we are seeing over and over and over again in the Old Testament and here specifically in the book of Judges, God uses, to use the Greek phrase, the ta-ethne. That means the non-godlike people, sometimes translated the Gentiles, sometimes just translated the nations, the godless nations that God uses to bring that judgment down upon God's own people who are pleading with God to do so because of the, the embracing of abject sin. This is the theme of Judges. Where in this instance, Jephthah appears on the scene to rescue 
God's people from their own wickedness and perversion. And what we, what we desperately need in our day is a similar earthly Savior like Jephthah. But if we as God's people do not ourselves grow in our relationship to the living God, which means seeing as He sees, loving what He loves, and it means hating what He hates, there will be no rescue of any duration, and indeed the end is near. Judges chapter 10, verse 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and they crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and Gilead in the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and Benjamin in the house of Ephraim so that, <laughs> this is understated, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Yeah, I think. I believe firmly so many of God's people today walk around in this cloud of presumption taking God's mercy exemplified to the extreme on the torturous cross of Calvary so for granted is because in ignorance Two-thirds of the Word of God given to the church, meaning the Old Testament, has been mostly ignored. And where it hasn't been ignored, it has been largely misused, abused, and misunderstood. Verse 10, Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, the sons of Ammon and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hands. And yet you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Horrific words. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. God apparently does get fed up. He does grow weary of the cyclical, intentional repetition of sin by His people. Verse 15, The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. I find that very curious. 
Is God, through this word here, by his spirit, telling us again, yet, of their insincerity? Look at it again. God, we've sinned. We repent. Do to us whatever you want. But deliver us. Wait a minute. No. Do to us whatever you want. Period. No, but deliver us. Do to us whatever you want, as long as it's good and you get us out of this mess again. I see myself looking in a mirror way too often. True. Warren Wiersbe. When God chastens us in love and we're suffering because of our sins, it's easy to cry out to Him for deliverance and make all kinds of promises. But when we're comfortable and enjoying His blessings, we tend to forget God and assume that we can sin and get away with it. Oh, my head. I tell you, basically any given week in the life of faith, I could give you illustration after illustration. Comfortable living often produces weak character. Happiness is not the end of life, said Henry Ward Beecher. Character is. But character is built when we make right decisions in life and in those decisions and those decisions are made on the basis of the things that we value most. Since Israel didn't value the things of God, she ended up destroying her own national character. But there's one more verse that I have to go to. And this is why we waited for the Lord's table till after the message today. Given what I just read from the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, the cross is in view. For remember and don't ever forget that God is not constrained by or within time. For Him, the cross of Jesus is a present, constant reality. So even though by our frame of reference it was hundreds and hundreds of years yet to come for God who is outside of time, it is a present, current reality always. Last verse, phrase. And God could bear their misery no longer.